Welcome to another episode of Becoming DO. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Becoming DO. I'm here with the homie Jess. Yes, the co-host, the original. Jamie. And then I'm with the uh, a friend of mine, Kaylee. Uh, she's my friend. <laughs> I'm friends with everyone. Bro, you have to pick. I'm not picking right now. <laughs> we all know the answer to that. <laughs> not when there's recorded episodes. True, true. It's fine. Anyways, um, today we're gonna talk about a few things, though. You know, first of all, like let's let's do some updates. How how's uh how you doing, Jess? Like where are you at now? Where the people? I am know? unwell. <laughs> I'm good. I'm in Dayton, Ohio, right now. It's cold as frick but we are living our best life anyway we got the heated blanket on that's how we do it i have to say <laughs> heated blankets might be one of the best whoever made those smart person genius genius because that that's what saved me when i was in michigan like if i didn't have it i probably had like i was freezing bro yep. the heated blankets so those are goaded frostbite how about you katie <laughs> What's 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 up with you? Um, I'm in Charleston, West Virginia, doing a general surgery month. Fun. I had most of last week off, so I've barely even been here. But <laughs> it's chill. It's good. Yeah. So I'm currently back in El Paso. I just finished the month in Denver. By the way, I have to say I love Denver. The air there just. It hits different. The weed. Do you know no, like? I'm just kidding. I had to like. Check. Does it smell like it everywhere? What do you mean? Like, like everybody talks about the air being like fresh, but like, there's no like weed smell everywhere. No, I think that's another thing that people are, like surprised about. People th- think that like I feel like it might just be uh because of it's everywhere. People are like, yeah, you know. Because even, even most of our patients, like, I, not a lot of people did as much weed. I guess maybe it's because I, I was in the more affluent area. I don't know. But I didn't really meet a lot of patients that did a little weed. So, no. I don't think you really smell like weed in the air. But I checked, like, the pollution index of, like, Denver versus El Paso. El Paso air is nasty, bro. Yeah. No offense. So, like, obviously, you have, we have the... I don't know if it's a refinery or what what it is right here, but it's just messing up our air, bro. Well, a lot of it's sand and dirt from the windstorms and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think part of it is yeah, and that's another thing I also noticed that there are a lot of like like trees in Denver. Like I didn't even know. <laughs> I thought it was all just mountains. I'm not. I'm not okay. This I'm not even capping. I'm being honest, bro. And then the water, the water too feels felt different on my skin, bro. Jesse knew my skin was on like it was dry. It was glazing, bro. No, it was glazing. Why, why are you lying? <laughs> <laughs> it was glazing, bro. So and my skin was fresh. That the water hit different. You know, we get the leftovers here in El Paso from Colorado River. So when you're in mm. Colorado, you get the, the fresh stuff. Is it easy to detach yourself from 
the situation, like, especially in something that's very, very emotional. So, like, you could compartmentalize and not carry those stuff home. Because when I was considering, like, like doing so drunk and, like, doing guy nunk, I was thinking about how as someone who, to some degree, I I tend to ruminate about things and about, I care about if I meet a patient and I get to know this patient and just, like, you know, number, I, like, actually get to know, like, oh, this patient has a family, this patient has kids. Like, it's hard to detach yourself from, especially if it's a patient that's, like, has a terminal illness, you know, it's, like, how do you separate yourself from from the work, you know, because mm-hmm. the other like the other day we had this one patient and this the she's she's she was definitely gonna die. The patient was definitely gonna die. Like she had organs were failing, her vent settings were going up, so she was definitely gonna die. And I guess she was prepared. She was mentally prepared for that, and she was ready for that before she, everything went south. But how do we as physicians? Because it's something like they, they, they did try to, to. We had that one class in school about like talking about debt and like not necessarily processing it, but how to discuss debt with your patient, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like, how do we separate it? Because obviously, we're going to encounter you in OB with would I be the mom? Or because I mean, I, I know personally, I've had like family, uh, I had a family member that died in child, childbirth, you know, I've had a family member that died because of preeclampsia. So you're going to have patients. And think about, like, these are patients that are going to be very personal to you. I know you as a person, and I know how you get with people. Like, you get so close to them. Mm. And these are patients you're going to know for nine months. And at that point, it's not even one patient. You're going to have two patients. You're going to have the mom and the kid. And, mm-hmm. like, imagine, like, having to see them through nine months and, like, getting them to that end of Like, because... Every single month, every single day that passes as a pregnant woman is difficult. It's hard. And it's all over. Like, you, we, you as Obi-Gan, you're trying your best to guide her to the finish line. I wouldn't post that. But it's also a difficult time. And, like, having to go through all that just to lose her because of, you know, postpartum bleeding or just to lose her because of, like, brain clamps or, you know, like, because mm-hmm. things always go south. You know, like, you know, like, honestly, I feel very, like, fortunate that I haven't had to experience any, like, maternal death from anything. I mean, I've definitely seen, like, a lot of, like, postpartum hemorrhage or just, like, kind of complications during surgery where things, you know, were, like, pretty intense for a little bit. But luckily, like, everyone's been able to, you know, safely come out of the situation and recover I have had like a couple like fetal demise things so that's always sad but I think that when that does happen it definitely will be like very difficult but I think it's important to for me to like find a residency program where you have a really supportive team because inevitably like mistakes are going to happen things things like don't go perfectly every time and in your training having like the support and like 
not making you feel like more terrible because I, I think a lot of us already kind of hold on to things or like blame ourselves for things so having a program that is going to be supportive of you and that is like really important for me because I definitely like care too much and like get too emotionally involved so it's it's like hard to even think about <laughs> what like I don't I don't even know how I'd respond if one of my patients died so how about you Katie what do you think what what is the main question here <laughs> the question the question I was asking is pretty much how do you think you're going to deal with um patient demise or when you eventually in residency or post residency when you're attending how do you think you're going to be able to separate because you're going to you're going to you're going to you're going to deal with it eventually it's going to happen yeah i mean just like two weeks ago i had a patient that was transferred to us from different you know facility and they were at that facility for an X lap and was they were found to have like basically necrotizing pancreatitis. Oh, wow. And so they were just like a mess inside, right? Like everything was eaten just up and like yeah, it was just it was all like dead and necrotic and it was just really bad. And <clears throat> they were sent to us in discontinuity and then we took them to the OR, like did what we could, but we pretty much knew like that this was not salvageable. And so we sent them to the, the sick you for a few days and like let the family come and see the patient. And everybody kind of made the decision collectively that like we were basically just prolonging death. Like we weren't even, you know, saving life at that point. And so they tried to like wean the vent and the patient actually woke up a little bit and like gained consciousness the patient also had lost both of their lower legs before mm. they had the pancreatitis. And so, like, they didn't even know that they had lost their lower legs when they woke up. And so, like, it was just a lot all at once. And they basically had to have a conversation with them. Like, you know, your organs are all failing internally. Like, there's nothing that we can do. And this patient is, like, 50. Like, not even that old. And... So we, we ended up taking them back to the OR one more time to close the incision. And then, like, literally the next day, we got paged to the SICU that they were crashing. But they had already been, like, moved to comfort care measures. So we basically all just stood there and watched as this patient, like, took their last breaths. Mm. And that, like, I've seen death before, so it wasn't, like, I don't know, but I've only seen it in, like, traumatic ways, I guess. So seeing it like that, where it's just, like, slow and, like, like literally, like, they're gasping for air. Like, it's such a characteristic gasp. That was the first time I had seen it like that. And there was a third-year med student with with us, and she started crying. And, like, everybody was very nice about it. Like, nobody was mean. Like, you know, save that for later or anything. Like, nobody said that, but... I mean, it is kind of strange how, like, like the SICU nurses were all very, like, they're numb to it. They just, like, they didn't even care. They were just, like, so who's going to call the, the ME? Mm-hmm. And we were all, like, I, like don't ask us. Like, we don't know. 
but I don't know. Like it did, it did kind of suck to like go on the rest of my day after that. Cause that was like first thing in the morning. I mean, it was like eight 30 and that was like how I was starting my day. Yeah. And I don't know, like I went to the bathroom and I, I don't pray, but I, I do like to like send vibes out, you know? So I, I just, <laughs> I set a vibe for the that person and their family and I made peace with it and, and I moved on. Mm-hmm. And it's like, like, I don't know. I mean, I've dealt with, you know, fetal demises too. Like, you know, intrauterine fetal demises. I had to deliver those babies and that's hard also. Those, I think, are a little bit harder for me personally, but. Yeah. I mean, I should say, like, this, uh, that's the specialty you're going into, you know. Right. Witness a lot of that. And that's why I said, I was going to ask if you guys think it's going to be easier as an attendant versus, like, residency. Because, like, as an attendant, like, your ownership of this patient is very, it's, it's very different from when you're a medical student. I don't think using the word easy mm-hmm. is the right word because if it ever gets easy, I don't want to be a doctor anymore. Mm. But I think you do get you get better at see. But I don't even really like the word com- compartmentalizing because I I still think that we should like feel those feelings. Yeah, and we should grieve those losses, but it's not something that has to ruin our lives. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, I think that us having the ability to feel that grief and to express it in an appropriate way, either with the patient's family or or not, if they're not, you know, into that, I think that makes you a better doctor Mm because it shows that you have compassion and you care about your patients. I definitely want to, like, be, like, between residency and attending, I will hope to have a better grasp on delivering that kind of news in a delicate way that's like yeah still compassionate but also like concise and allowing I think a lot of times we can struggle with like just like you don't need to like drag it out like give them the information that they need to know not sugarcoat it and and Give them space because, like, you're hold- just hold space for them to, like, feel what they're feeling. Like, yeah. when I was a third year on my first OB rotation, I distinctly remember it was also, like, right away in the morning. I love that. But, like, going in, telling a mom that, like, her first ultrasound visit, like, hey, there's no heartbeat. Like, it's not a great conversation to be having. But, like, my attending just pretty much said just that, like, we didn't find a heartbeat, so when do you want to schedule a DNC, like, kind of vibe? And it was very shocking for me as the very first experience that I had in in a conversation like that. And it was, like, my second rotation of med school. So I think that moment really sh- shaped how I view these conversations and kind of discouraged me from wanting like I I didn't want to be like that like I didn't want to have so much like I I agree with Kaylee like if I ever get to a point where I 
am just frankly like yeah your baby doesn't have a heartbeat sorry when do you want to eat it like I don't want to be like that I want to <laughs> have I want to have the ability to like hold space with them grieve with them because as much as like those conversations suck I feel like as an OB I'm gonna have so many more positive conversations and happy moments like it's such a joy to be in in that space with like you get to share the most intimate part of people's lives with them nobody else can say that they like helped helped a family begin you know like it's incredible experience to be a part of and that's like what we live for that's what like we love to do but it's also important to be there for like those other conversations and I think that it's important to like understand that like yeah those moments are going to happen but like you're going to still be their provider when those tough times happen and then get them through that to experiencing like a good pregnancy and and healthy baby too yeah yeah I think there's definitely something like something mm, what am I trying to say here like I think we should strive to be direct in our conversations about death and delivering hard news like you don't want to beat around the bush and Mm lose people but I think there is there's a way to be professional and explain the information but also leave room to connect with your patients or their families at the same time I don't think it has no cut and dry there's no heartbeat let's let's get it out (laughs) yeah and it's like that person doesn't have anyone like their partner wasn't there with them or any support system so like that's pretty devastating news like you came into this appointment thinking you're pregnant for with your first baby and it was going to be like exciting and it turns out to be extremely devastating and I just think like we could we can do better and be a little more cognizant of yeah like how they're going to handle that news and like it would definitely suck to be like hey to hear like hey I have some bad news do you want to call like your partner to come and be here with you or like do you have somebody that can come be with you because I don't know I just it doesn't sit right with me to like I wouldn't want to be alone in a situation like that so I don't know but on the other side like on my gynonc rotations I have also seen like my patients die there and really those don't hit me as hard because it's like if you're like 80 some and you're like you have like ovarian cancer and it's very sad but also like for me I'm like you've lived a good life and you're able to like give we're able to give you like comfort and like peace and quality of life at the end but like I think I've talked to you about this like I had a patient she's 16 years old and those kind of patients like really make me lose sleep at night because there's nothing I can do and it sucks because she hasn't had the opportunity to live uh, like her life to the fullest like she's barely even lived so those are hard and like she's not dead but like I don't I know I know like the outcome likelihood Mm -hmm. like what's probably gonna happen so it's like 
giving her false hope of like oh yeah you're gonna live like a long life and like be able like you're not ever gonna be able to have kids you're not ever gonna be able to be like a normal teen again you have a colostomy now and you you know are gonna experience life differently now and I don't know how long you're going to live so like those conversations I think are more important to like be honest with and not don't give false hope especially to like the family because like if you have a child and you're expecting them to like grow up and get married and start a family and that now none of those things are ever going to happen for them so it's just important to like be real and I don't think we always do that like uh, for her like we're like someday you'll be able to like revert your colostomy back and I'm like if you even are able to like survive the chemo and radiation and then like the ovarian cancer survival rates are just not great so like how do you tell somebody that like that their daughter is not going to probably live for longer than five more years guys I don't understand how like the pediatric oncologist I don't get how they do what they do uh, I, yeah. like I, said, I think any like anybody that do, did those peds oncology, I have like so much respect for them. They are literally. And this is this is, this is all, like this was like I could segue to the next question I was gonna ask because I know like one of the big one of the big things that we do in um, in medicine now, obviously in residency, is like M and M's, like mobility and mortality, like. With where we go through cases, see every single decision was ma- that was made, and I was thinking because I was what I was, obviously when you watch like shows and also like in real life and stuff, where if we're talking about like giving bad news, and most of the instances we gave was at this at that point there was nothing we could do, right? Like, is it different where? This patient was stable, but it was okay, not stable, but to some degree, like it was just we made the wrong decisions. And I think that is one thing that elevate that se- separates um, physicians from lower level practitioners because at the end of the day, the decision stops on us, like with most uh, specialties, like every decision we make. And so something big like surgery or taking a patient back, every single cut, like it's a life or death situation. Like you could make a, a mistake, you forget to clip an artery or not clip it hard enough that will cause a patient, like will completely change a patient's life. Go for a routine cholecystectomy and you end up just dissecting, you know, the common bio doctor now just if you mess up the patient's life. So like, a situation where you made a decision as a physician or you were not fast enough or you know where you I guess this is just a personal thing where you blame yourself that A, you didn't do the right thing Mm -hmm. fast enough or you made the wrong decision in the patient's like management and stuff you know and it happens like it happens it's part of medicine like so like how do you deal with that when you blame yourself? I don't know if you guys are the type to always take personal blame when things happen. At least I know for for far um, that's like one of my weaknesses. I tend to overthink things and whenever things go wrong, I definitely blame myself that oh I should have done better. 
I should have done this instead of that. Like, why didn't I do A, B, C instead of D, right? You know, like, that thing in your mind that keeps telling you that, yeah, I should have done better. And now, patient is quote-unquote dead because of my decisions. So, I don't know if that's... That's why people, like, is it different when you're an attendant? Because now, like, you made a decision that led to this patient's demise, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think... I think it's easy to say that like doctors deal with this more often than the normal population, but I think this is something that like we as humans deal with just as a whole. Like people make decisions every day that kill other people. Yeah. And I think the only thing that you can do is learn what you did wrong and make sure that you try like hell to never let it happen again. And that's all you can do from that. Like, you can't go back and change what you did. There's no point in blaming yourself and saying, you know, like, oh, this was all my fault and I'm a terrible person and I should just never, you know, practice again because that's not helping anybody. So you just got to pick yourself up by the bootstraps and learn from your mistakes and keep pushing. Yeah. And that's why I think medicine is it's so vital that it is a team thing because it's not just you making all the decisions. It's not just you make like making mistakes. This is, this is a team effort. And that's why our training is so rigorous because yeah, as an intern, I'm not going to know anything, but I, I don't have to like worry because I have people above me that are watching me and helping me and so it's not all on me and so I think that that's why it's so important to like have that training because then you'll feel confident going into being an attending that like you're gonna make the best decisions for your patients and even then like you still might make a mistake but I think that like Kaylee was saying like you can't blame yourself for everything but it's it's hard to say that because inevitably like you will I I had an experience like this just this week um my intern you know placed a Foley balloon and then after that my patient continued to have like prolonged d-cells and you know he was like did I cause that like was did I like do something or place the Foley in a way that I caused that to happen and in reality it was and then we ended up having to go back to C-section, but in reality, like, it probably had nothing to do with him, right? Like, yeah, that, that doesn't make sense, but, like, even as an intern, he was taking that guilt on, even though it was unnecessary, so I think it's just kind of, it shows, if you don't feel bad about things like that, I think that you shouldn't be in medicine, because it shows that, like, you care about your patients, and you're constantly trying to do the best you can for them because if you didn't care and you didn't feel bad I think that that would mean that you know you you aren't serious about your job and we like it is a job at the end of the day and I know that it's hard to like kind of delineate like who we are as a person outside of medicine but like in reality we we all know that this isn't just a regular like nine to five job like these are people's lives in our hands and we 
we take it seriously because it is serious. Okay, and that was that was that was good. Do you have any final thoughts Some before we close out? Because obviously, like another deep sentimental. Have, um, I was gonna talk about this on another episode, like like Katie mentioned, like the patient that basically lost his leg, and I was gonna have a whole conversation on like quality of life, and I was hoping to have it like with your nurses, friends, because. They have, to, they have to see and deal with these patients. And I think quality of life is so important, especially when we making decisions as physicians. We have to take into consideration the, the quality of the life of the patient after whatever treatment or whatever we're going to do to this patient. Like, what kind of life are they going to live, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, like, how much... Like, and I guess it's also dependent on... It's very personal, like, what quality of life means to each person, you know? And some things could also be generalized as well, but I'm gonna have this conversation some other time. But any final thoughts on the whole issue of like dealing with death as a medical student or as a resident or someone that's going into medicine? I think it's inevitable. I think you just have to have a plan for how you know you have to know yourself too. You have to know how you grieve and how you deal with things. Have a plan of attack for when it happens. And therapy. I think that's all you can do. <laughs> I think therapy is a big, that's a big shout out to therapy, bro. Like, I think it's it's so important. I think just when I was driving back from um, um, Denver, there was this ad that came out on radio. It's about um, go check and see if you have a, if, a stigma. It's like this whole like stigma against mental illness and like just, did you actually think that's a stigma against like therapy in general or no? Yeah. Did I think for like... men more than women, but I think that it's it's hard because a lot of us like always talk about, oh yeah, go to therapy, like it's so important. But like it's in reality like difficult to access and we know that and therapists are amazing and their job is like really necessary but it's really hard to find a good therapist that you connect with speaking from personal experience I always find myself like this is like a TMI but (laughs) I'll like get a good therapist and then either move or like um they like I'm not going to divulge into the whole thing, but, like, out of network, basically, let's just say. But, like, it's worse than a freaking breakup, let me tell you. Like, I would rather get broken up with, go through anything, than have my therapist no longer be able to be my therapist. It sucks. And so it's kind of, like, traumatizing. And then you're, like, you're, like, hurt emotionally. I can't like can't find another one cuz they were so good. They're never you're never going to find a, another one as good as them. So even when you do go to therapy, it doesn't fix everything, you know? It's always going to be things yeah. that you need to work on and do I don't you think know. do you think everybody should have a therapist? I mean, I think and this is but you guys' viewpoint. I feel like people use um quote unquote their friends but they're yeah Stanley's guilty spouse. hey hey <laughs> <laughs> don't be putting out my business out there 
Walk with the patient, uh, you know. <laughs> the reality, man. Like, y'all be putting my business out there. But, yeah, like I was saying. <laughs> but, like, people use their friends for therapy, people use their spouses as, like, a therapist, you know. And obviously, like, that 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 happens. That like that's the whole point of having friends and having a spouse, like someone that you could talk to and stuff. But I should think, do you do you guys think every physician should? And it's probably just going into. We might have a have a deeper conversation on therapy. But do you guys think, oh, physician should have every physician should have a therapist, even psychologists as well should have a therapist. I think I don't think everyone needs it. You do or you don't. No, I don't think everybody needs it. When you use the word therapy, I mean it less so in like the strict sense of like you going to a certified therapist's office like, yeah. for an appointment once a week or whatever. Like therapy to me is just like, yes, obviously I've gone to therapists and I've gathered like tools and things that I use in my daily life, but like I feel like it's more just self-care like things that you can yeah. do that support yourself whether it's like journaling or like doing a hobby that you love it's just time for yourself where you can like think about what's going on in your life and your feelings about it I don't think you necessarily yeah. need a therapist to achieve mm-hmm. those things so I think yeah like if if people are you know emotionally I don't want to say mature enough but like if they if people like just have that skill like out the gate, I'm jealous of them, but also like good for them. And I don't think they would benefit from like seeing a therapist regularly. But for those of us who like didn't necessarily have like grow up in model, a stable home, no, I'm just yeah. like if you don't have, <laughs> no, but, like, okay. if you don't have okay. to to model after, then you know how are you ever going to learn how to support yeah. yourself emotionally like that? And this is obviously a very deeper topic, like. Like te- like mental illness and obviously like going to therapy, wounds especially coming from someone that like West- that was not in Western culture that they do anybody from like the like the East, i.e. like outside of America and I guess Europe or like you know like Africa or whatever like therapy was so frowned upon, you know. I said for like the only therapy that was good therapy was you know premarital therapy or you go to your pastor for quote yeah. unquote, you know, therapy which pastors i don't know how much of a licensed therapist they have because it's still to some degree they, this is a very biased viewpoint you know like like that's the thing you won't talk to your pastor about if you're having trouble because it's a very very biased viewpoint i should think right like when you say therapy i don't mean you don't have to be going every single week i think some people just you might just go through some really hard time in, like in life because everybody goes through, like, you know, like, valleys and, like, you know, like, when you're going through, like, a very tough time, maybe you just need a, a, a section for a month or something to get through that time. And I feel like if people had access to more therapy, we wouldn't have a, as much a situation. I think, especially with how society is going, we're going to need it. And I think that's why the psychiatry has become such a booming field. And, like, because people are seeing the value to a psychiatrist and we, they are so needed they're very, very I definitely needed. agree with you it's like a African culture thing like to not like stigmatized mental health in general and like 
even like suicide and like about like depression things like that it's very taboo and I think that it's very rooted in religion of like oh if you like have faith and you you know trust in God then you don't need to be depressed and you don't need to have like suicidal thoughts you know things like that but unfortunately like that isn't always true like you can still have faith and be depressed but I think that it's it's not a bad thing to have things that help ground you and if religion is something that provides you that support and help then that's great but yeah like you were saying there's definitely things that aren't appropriate to talk about with your pastor that are still like important things to like get help with but I think what Kaylee was saying is 100% I agree with like you really going into residency need to have exceptional coping mechanisms and like ways to de-stress and I think it's really important to find what those are even in medical school like going into medical school it's important to be able to understand who you are as a person like I will say I am not somebody who studies well in groups and you have to know those things about yourself because if you don't you're gonna it's gonna be to like the detriment of yourself so like knowing like Kaylee she needed a moment after something like that to like just be by by herself and like recenter herself (laughs) yeah like knowing that about yourself is what's really important knowing when you need a moment or like when you need to step away and I think that that's really like the most important takeaway it's not necessarily like that these things happen because we all are going to experience them but how we are able to like what realizing what we need to do for ourselves is going to be the most important thing yeah yeah and maybe I should follow up this uh episode with talking about like therapy and mental illness because yeah I'm actually going to be it's going to come up this is uh you guys know if you guys have stayed uh this long into the episode uh, I'm going to be interviewing <laughs> a child psychiatrist uh fairly soon enough so I don't know if uh, we're going to drop a episode on therapy and mental illness before that or after that we'll see but we need to have a conversation about it because it's it's big I think the the suicidal rates among physicians, I think it's, I forgot what the rate is now, but it's, it's not, it's not like it's going down or anything. And then they say one in three medical students are depressed or have a depressive episode in medical school. So, well, there's three of us here and I'm guaranteeing <laughs> you it's higher than that. <laughs> I know, but I said one in three though. We just have to be like three, three Yeah, but three birds, of, a birds of a feather flock together. So, <laughs> But like, yeah, yeah this I might think... be biased I mean, <laughs> yeah, representation, but, like... but I guarantee you that it's more than one in three. Yeah, no, for sure, for sure. Um, but like, it's just I think that's a very conservative number. I think it's very, very important, and not just in medical school, and just in general as a whole, like in the world, like people, everybody goes through like some probably going to a depressive episode, and yeah, I guess I don't like like we need to have a conversation about like obviously mental illness and therapy and the importance of all that um so you're going to close it up Jess yeah 
as always, thank you for listening. Hopefully you enjoyed this episode on Becoming Dio, and we'll catch you next time. Oh, that was sweet. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Becoming T.O. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Anyway, guys, have a great day.